You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 9 through 14 this morning, 9 through 14. I want to encourage you, if you have a physical Bible, take it out, search the scriptures with us. Uh, I desire that you have an open Bible, an open mind, and an open heart. If you don't have a physical Bible, uh, you can go uh, on your smartphone and download the Version Bible app. That's Y-O-U version Bible app. And after you download it, you can go to the More Tab, Tap Events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, and then click on today's sermon title, and you'll find the scripture references and the notes and quotes. They'll be there provided for you on your smartphone that you can review and save uh, for future reference. If you're outside the Habersham County area and you've joined us for worship this morning, you may have to search uh, in the bar for Demarest, Georgia. That's where we're at, D-E-M-O-R-E-S-T, and it should pull up Mount Carmel Baptist Church. We've started a series going through the book of Acts, the book of Acts, and we are at part four, which I've entitled Ascension. Ascension. There is a concept in psychology about children's development that's called object permanence. And you've probably seen this play out uh, if you've had any little ones around you at all. In my house, I have a three-year-old named Scotland and a soon-to-be one-year-old named Haddon. And Haddon, and I do not hold this against him, uh, he is a mama's boy. He loves my Mandy, and I understand why. But Haddon has not developed or achieved object permanence yet. And here's how this affects my family. When Haddon and Mandy are in the same room, everything is fine and wonderful. But the minute Haddon sees his mom go just into another room and she is no longer in sight, Haddon begins to search, then he puckers up and he begins to scream. Because in his mom, until he develops object permanence, now that she has gone out of sight, she must have ceased to exist. She is no longer there. And you can see this play out because the moment she steps into the room and he identifies her, his whole demeanor changes. He smiles, he hams it up, he cheeses it up, and he started doing this winking. He starts winking. He gets so excited that she's there. And I want to ask this question this morning as we look into Acts Chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. What happens when Jesus leaves? What happens when Jesus is no longer in the room? How would his 
disciples act. After 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples over and over again. And he taught them about the kingdom of God, and he foretold that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and empower them, clothe them with power to be his witnesses around the world. And then something amazing happens. Jesus leaves them, just leaves them. What happens when Jesus leaves? Let's look at Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, just this first paragraph in the story. It says this, After he, Jesus, had said this, he, Jesus, was taken up as they were watching. This is a passive verb, taken up. God took him up, right? The Father received him. As they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. A cloud is generally in the Old Testament a sign of God's glorious presence. God took Jesus up to heaven. Verse 10, while he was going, they were gazing into heaven. And suddenly, two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Again, the question we're exploring this morning is, what happens when Jesus leaves? The very first thing that I want you to see, and I'll do my best to explain and unpack for you this morning, is that Jesus ascended so the Holy Spirit would descend. Jesus ascended so that the Holy Spirit would descend. Jesus' resurrection appearances were not unbroken. He appeared and disappeared often. But here, for the first time, Jesus ascends. It's different. He doesn't disappear. He ascends. It is a glorious departing. This signals to the apostles and the disciples the end of His resurrection appearances. He would no longer be with them. He would no longer be in the room. He is exiting. He is departing. Now, I want you to follow this line of questioning with me this morning. Why must Jesus' resurrection appearances end why is Jesus not continuing to appear to people today? Is it possible for, just, for us to experience both the local presence, the bodily presence of Jesus, and the spiritual presence from the Holy Spirit? Why must Jesus go and remain in heaven? And I think there are several, but I'm going to keep it down to just a few this morning, several theological and practical reasons. First, Jesus has a ministry to continue. Jesus is actually doing ministry 
right now in heaven. And this gets me excited. In heaven, at this moment, Jesus is praying for you and me. This moment, right now, wherever you're at, Jesus is interceding for you. He is going to the Father and requesting and granting grace that we need to live godly lives and live in joyful service to God and others. The scripture also points out that Jesus stands in the presence of God the Father as our advocate. He is there pleading our case and our cause before the Father. And because of this, God forgives us when we confess our sins. Jesus is ever standing there as our sacrifice once and for all for the forgiveness of our sin. And Jesus' presence there beside the Father reassures us of that. Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one. He's not entering a physical temple. In fact, this is what Jesus did. But went into heaven itself so that he might now appear in the presence of God, and I love these last two words, for us. Jesus is continuing to minister for us in heaven before the Father. I like Robert uh, Murray McShane's quote, and I've shared this with you before, but if you're new to Mount Carmel, I hope you appreciate it like we do. He said this, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Whether he would be praying in this little room next door or whether he's praying in heaven right beside the Father, distance doesn't matter. He is there for me and for you. He's praying for you right now. So one of the reasons that he leaves, he no longer remains, is to carry on a ministry of intercession that we have assurance, think of it like this, that he has the right ear of the Father. And he's doing that for you and me. But that's not the only reason Jesus must remain in heaven. The second thing I want you to think about is that Jesus is truly and eternally embodied. And this is a little bit harder to follow, so please stay with me. Jesus is truly and eternally embodied. Like you and me, Jesus cannot be in two places at one time. And some of you are saying, He's God. God can do anything. But I need you to understand what the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, did for you and I. He was incarnated. The truth of the incarnation is that Jesus remained fully God and yet added to His divine nature the full nature of man. And man's existence is bodily. We have bodies. We're not omnipresent. We can't be everywhere at one time. And by virtue of His incarnation, Jesus, through all eternity, and this should show you how intimate He is with you and I. He is bodily. He is in a local place. 
There is a geographical place that Jesus of Nazareth occupies, and it's near the right hand of God the Father. Jesus still, although glorious, immortal, and incorruptible since his resurrection, when he received that glorious body, it still, his body still had a localized presence. You could say he was here and not there. He appeared and then disappeared. He is right now at the right hand of the Father with the triumphant company of heaven. That is where the local body of Jesus is. Now, if you remember this, if you, if you know the book of Matthew and, and most of the ends of the chapters of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's generally a promise there that we, we cherish that Jesus said, Ah, will never leave you nor forsake you. Yet we just said Jesus has left the room. What happens when Jesus leaves? It's clear He is bodily present with the Father. But this is the amazing part. Jesus said, I'm going to actually do something better. Something that's much more expedient. Something that's much more for our benefit. When I ascend and remain with the Father... I will send the Holy Spirit down. Now here's why we're so happy and blessed that the Holy Spirit is the primary minister that we follow here on the earth in this present age. He fulfilled His promise. Jesus fulfilled His promise by sending the Holy Spirit who now can dwell in believers. Of course, Jesus, if He has a body, cannot be dwelling inside our minds and hearts and relate to us in that way. But the Holy Spirit does not have a body. He can be anywhere at any time. He can always be with us. And Jesus tells us that until He departs and the Spirit descends, this is not a reality for His disciples. Because the Holy Spirit... Now, here, here's how you say it. How is it then that somehow Jesus is with us, never leaving or forsaking us, and yet He's with the Father in heaven? Because here's where we talk about Trini the Trinity. Every person of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they equally share infinite divinity. So it's not this circle or pie of godness and they split it up three ways. No, that exact same divine pie, all three of them possess. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is God. And that God is the exact same God. That is not to say that Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. This is three persons in one God. But here's why this means. They have, all three, have the exact same divine nature. And if you're looking for a, a good analogy or illustration, there isn't one, okay? God Himself is Trinitarian. There's nothing else like Him. He is holy. But here's what that means. Since the nature, the divine nature in Jesus is the exact same divine nature in the Holy Spirit. 
While Jesus is physically present with the Father, the point is this, if the Holy Spirit is with us and He has the exact same divine nature as Jesus, then the Holy Spirit can communicate the presence of Jesus to you and all. It is completely biblical and theologically correct to say, Jesus is with me now here in this empty room, and He's with you in your home. And He does that through the intermediary work of the Holy Spirit. That should excite you. Jesus is with us because the Holy Spirit is with us. I like what F.F. Bruce said. The presence of the Holy Spirit would keep Jesus' people in living union with their risen, glorified, and returning Lord. His exaltation at God's right hand means that He, Jesus, is more effectually present with His people on earth always to the end of the age. And then as it says in Ephesians 4.10, He ascended far above all the heavens. Why? That He might feel all things. Now how does Jesus feel all things? Through the descent of the Holy Spirit. So He is here with me. He is there with you. Jesus is everywhere by the Holy Spirit. And I still want to remind you, He is coming again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. Come, Lord Jesus. Then the third thing that I want you to see as to why Jesus departed so the Holy Spirit could descend is that the church would not exist. The church would not exist. And you say, Josh, Jesus built the church. I, I don't mean exist in that way. All right? But I want you to think about this. Jesus ascends. And what do the disciples do? Now, they've received a command to go to Jerusalem. They're outside of Jerusalem right now. But to go into Jerusalem and wait for the promised Holy Spirit. That's the command. And yet Jesus ascends and notice the picture. What are they doing? They are stuck gazing into the heavens. Some of them perhaps expected that the cloud would dissolve and Jesus would still be with them. So they're, they're just waiting right there. The eleven are not able to process the ascension. What does this mean? What, what, what are we supposed to do? And so God in His great grace sent two angelic visitors to give them a message. And if you read that message, I'll read it again. It says in verse 11, they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? It's almost, it's, it's a bit of a rebuke. It's, it's a rhetorical, almost sarcastic question. What are you doing here? And then notice what it says. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way and that uh, same way that you have seen him going into heaven. There is a bit of rebuke in the angelic message. Jesus' followers are just standing there transfixed on the gaze upward, not doing what Jesus said, <laughs> not waiting where he wanted them to wait. And here's what I think about this. I believe Christ's presence has a 
centripetal force. That ever-encircling force, like water circling a drain. That if Jesus is here, His disciples, they want to be where He is. And this is what's so amazing. So, Jesus leaves, and the Holy Spirit will descend, and the Holy Spirit's present. Not that we don't love the Holy Spirit, but His presence has a centrifugal force. It's an ever-widening circle pushing His people out. It's like that scary merry-go-round on a kid's playground, right? You start spinning it, next thing you know, everybody's flying off. And that's the kind of power that the Holy Spirit brings to the church. It's not this come and see, it's go tell. And that's what the Spirit does in you and I. In the meantime, I like what Grant Osborne said, God wants action, not paralysis. They undoubtedly want Jesus to stay there with them. We say that too, we want to see our risen Lord. But the next phase of salvation history is even now being initiated and it's time to get to work. That's what the the angels are ultimately getting at. Go back and get started obeying Jesus. John Stott puts it so much more simply. He says, their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. Thank God in a unique way, Jesus left so that we would go. (laughs) Because we would still, if Jesus was somehow, if the angels didn't interpret the ascension for us, I don't know if the church would exist. In fact, you would just have a handful of disciples on the Mount of Olives just still looking up to this day. But the Holy Spirit came and, and changed the world. We need to be able to say with Jesus what Jesus said in John 16, 7. He says, Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Counselor, he's in reference to the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. You and I need to look at each other when we ask the question, what happens when Jesus leaves? And instead of puckering our lips up and and screaming and being angry or fearful, we should say, it's better. It's better this way because the Holy Spirit is here with all of us, moving us into the world to witness effectively for King Jesus and bring more people into the kingdom of God. What a wonderful thing. So what happens when Jesus leaves? Jesus ascended so the Holy Spirit would descend. Now let's read Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. It says this, Then they, notice, so they took the angel's advice, right? Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. And here's the list of the remaining apostles. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Remember, Iscariot is no longer with them. Verse 14. They all were continually united in prayer, along with the women 
including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. Number two, what happens when Jesus leaves? Not only did Jesus ascend so that the Holy Spirit would descend, but here's the, the other part about this, is the Holy Spirit descended so we, you and I, could ascend. We can ascend. Now, I mean ascend metaphorically. I do not mean that you and I now have the ability to fly or to be taken up into a cloud or just to, or just to shoot up into heaven. What I'm talking about is because the Holy Spirit descends, we can partake in the divine nature. And I'm not meaning to say that we become gods. I'm saying is that His character, everything that God longs for us to be and do, we can now do because the Spirit is with us. I want you to think about this. So they obey Jesus' commands. They go to Jerusalem. It's a Sabbath day journey away. That's somewhere between uh, a half of a mile to three-fourths of a mile. So they walk back probably within that same day. And I want you to notice the variety of people And the church is going to grow ever more diverse. But still, think about the first church and and this prayer meeting that will devolve, and we'll look at it next week, into a business meeting. But look at this church and who composes or comprises the church. You have the apostles. Now, of course, they, they belong there. They're the ones that followed Jesus through his ministry. But I want you to think about that band. It was a, it was a band of fishermen, tax collector, a zealot. That's a revolutionary, a political revolutionary. That's, that's the men sitting in this room. Then meditate on what they had done during the ministry of Jesus. Peter had denied the Lord. Thomas had doubted. James and John, remember they fought over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. So I don't want to paint this rosy picture that these apostles were perfect. By no means. They were ordinary guys. Okay? And then there were the women. Now why is this significant? Again, this is a patriarchal society. We cannot downplay uh, the importance of what's going on here, that the women are participating in the church. And then we see Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was a member of this assembly. And notice, she's participating in praying and worshiping to her son, Jesus. She's not receiving prayer or worship. And then, probably my favorite, are the brothers. His brothers are there. Now, why does that matter? Jesus' earthly brothers did not believe him during his ministry. If you go to Mark 3.21, it actually says that they tried to restrain him because they thought he was mad, crazy. Jesus, stop what you're doing. Look what kind of ill repute you're bringing upon the family. And then think about Jesus and what he did at the cross because his brothers were nowhere to be found at the crucifixion. When it came time, Jesus was the oldest, and he had the responsibility to take care of his mother. Instead of passing it on to a younger brother, as we'll see, who they are clearly capable of taking care of their mother. But instead of doing that, Jesus gives this uh, caretaking 
responsibility to his best friend and a disciple named John. He bypasses the family altogether. Now, it's interesting that after his resurrection, we start to see the brothers appear. In fact, James will become the apostolic leader of the Jerusalem church. We also have a book in the New Testament entitled James. It's wrote by the half-brother of Jesus. And also the book of Jude. That's another brother of Jesus. They came to a complete 180 about the identity of who Jesus really was. He wasn't just their brother. He was also God. And they came to believe that. What a wonderful reason to believe in the resurrection. So what brought all these different people with different backgrounds and stories and not this idyllic, they're not perfect. What brings them all together? The common denominator is that they believed in the risen Jesus. Jesus changed everything. It made them look past their sins, their sins toward one another, their even race, gender, all those things they're going to look past because Jesus has united a new family, the church, through the cross and the resurrection. Now this church, this first church, was told to wait. Wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? Because this gives a picture for you and I about what waiting really is. How do they wait on God? It says they all continually united in prayer. Just a couple of Greek words that you just need to appreciate. The idea of continually is to persist obstinately, stubbornly, to not stop, to not give up, to stretch yourself out till the answer comes. The word unified here means to bring one into persuasion or passion, that they all shared the same conviction and the same goal and purpose and drive. And that was ultimately to receive the Spirit so they could go witness for Jesus. The idea is that they persistently, obstinately called out to God, all persuaded by one goal and passion for one thing. And then I found one thing really interesting about the word prayer. It's because technically there is an article in front of it. You could translate it, the prayer. They all were continually united in the prayer. Now, it, it probably just means prayer in the generic abstract form. All kinds of prayers. But I do want you to think about what could they be praying for? If you remember in Luke 11:13, Jesus instructed, remember Luke's the same author of both the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke. Luke instructs, uh, Jesus instructs them in the book of Luke 11:13 to ask for good gifts and specifically ask for the Holy Spirit. That's the best gift and God will give it. I believe there's no doubt that those men and women kept calling out day after day, asking and requesting God to make good on His promise, to hold Him to His Word. Give us the Spirit. Give us the Spirit. And they wouldn't let go. 
But then the other thing that I just have to use, and this is my sanctified imagination when I think about what the prayer might be, if it's not just in the abstract, is what if it's the Lord's prayer? We know that the early saints recited it. And here's the other part that I want you to think about. What's implicit in the Lord's prayer? Father, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. What's implicit in the Lord's prayer is that even as believers, we will sin against God and we will sin against one another. But if you want to pray, you have to forgive. That we cannot experience an unfettered relationship vertically with God while we destroy relationships across the church. And I just tend to think this is the case. The inherent to effective prayer is community. Inherent to effective prayer is community. Corporate praying. But at the same time, community can only be kept together by prayer. See, if if the church is praying as she ought to pray, divisions will be extremely hard to rise up in the church. Why? Because we've been continually asking God to forgive us of our sins as we dismiss the debts of those who have sinned against us. So imagine what prayer does for the unity of the church. And then at the same time, imagine what the community of the church does for prayer. Praying is hard. It is. It's hard spiritual work to, to wait and rest and pray to God. But isn't it amazing when we pray together? Don't you miss praying together? I hope after all of this, we'll find something that, that will incentivize us to pack out Wednesday night prayer meetings. Why? The church must pray together. This same kind of thing. This is what births this whole movement through the, through the book of Acts. So what do we do? What do we do? It is not necessary for us to pray for what I want to call the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And what I mean by that is the moment that you truly repent of sin. That's not perfect Repentance, okay? I like what someone said. Repentance is not perfection, it's direction. We're acknowledging that we're sinners and we're turning around and looking to Jesus. And we're trusting and resting in Jesus' work alone. His shed blood on the cross for our sins and His death for the payment for our sin and then His resurrection that, that He is the proof, the resurrection is the proof that God, God has forgiven us of all of our sin and in fact grants us a relationship with Him through the Spirit and eternal life. But the moment that we repent and believe and trust only in Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins a relationship with us. He will never leave nor forsake us. But what you will find throughout the book of Acts is after this initial indwelling that we'll see in Acts chapter 2, that the church will regularly assemble to ask the Holy Spirit to Feel them over and over again for boldness and power to witness. And that part, I do believe, the church today needs to continue to do. 
You will receive the Spirit when you repent and call out to Jesus. But you're going to need these subsequent feelings over and over again in your Christian walk to carry out the work of of witnessing and making much of Jesus because here's what you'll learn. You cannot carry out the commands of Jesus without the Holy Spirit. It's that simple. We cannot do what God wants us to do without Him. We are to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit over and over again. Paul will remind us to be led by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. We're not to get out in front of Him. We're to stay behind Him. And the way we stay behind is we wait on Him. And how do we wait? Waiting is not doing nothing. Waiting for the Christian is praying. Praying. And praying isn't doing nothing. Prayer is the work. Prayer is the work of waiting and resting and asking God, take over God. Take over. One commentator wrote, and I love this, Christianity is a religion of waiting. Christianity is a religion of waiting. It's not that we don't do anything. We are not responsible for anything. I don't mean that we're not morally culpable. What I mean is this. Salvation is from Jesus. Regeneration and sanctification are from the Holy Spirit. Adoption and kingdom citizenship is from the Father. Did you notice that none of those things are by our own initiative, but by the grace of God. We are recipients of those things. We wait. We rest. This is not a religion of works. God is a gracious God in which He gives us things to enjoy and then glorify Him with. And I don't mean material possessions. I'm saying we are spiritually impoverished. We can't drum up spiritual health. We can't drum up spiritual steam. We can't have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control apart from the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. So what do we do? Pray. (laughs) What's prayer? Prayer is a demonstration that we can't. We can't. I can't do this, God. If you're in the boat of I can't, Well, that's the boat you need to be in. It's not that we won't move. We can move, but you can't move without God. If you want to have effectual, godly living, true change, true repentance, true faith, true joy, true true service to God and worship, and then to minister to other people, it's just impossible. You cannot, people will know, I believe, they'll be able to discern a difference between the spirit working through someone and then just the human humdrum effort that is just totally different and distinct. This is the rhythm of the Christian life. It's this, you ready? It's we wait, we witness, we wait, We witness. And what do I mean by wait? 
I'm not saying that we don't do anything. I'm saying we pray. We pray in dependence. God, I can't do it. I can't do it. I need you. Take over. Then we march out of there and what? We make much of Jesus. That is the rhythm of the Christian life. You will not, you will not ever get past that. You will see that repeated over and over in the book of Acts. So while the, while the Holy Spirit is with us, He is here, okay? A facet of His ministry is to fill us over and over again to change us and equip us and empower us to obey the commands of Jesus. We can all pray this, Holy Spirit, do your work so we can work. Holy Spirit, do your work so we can work. Ordinarily, we would rather do anything than pray. But it is only when we wait before God in desperate, believing, fervent, unhurried, united prayer that the reviving, energizing power of the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. I usually don't like to end with a line or a rhyme or poetry. I usually don't like to tell you that I'm ending. But I just, as I finished this sermon, this song came to mind, and I just want you to hear the first and last verse of this song. And it just says, Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me. Now notice this. After thy will, while I am waiting, yielded and still. And that's not the whole picture. The, the, the whole song's awesome. But for the sake of time, listen to the last verse. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Hold over my being absolute sway. Feel with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only always living in me. The hymn writer got it dead on. We wait, we yield to the spirit, and when the spirit fills us, we go out and we make much of Jesus. Our blessed Lord Jesus wants to bless us with the Holy Spirit. Waiting in prayer and reconciled relationships are essential for the Holy Spirit to empower us for witnessing for Jesus. It's where we begin and end over and over again until Jesus descends. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to first... Ask the person who's never repented of their sins. They've never changed directions. They've been living in sin. Maybe unknown to them. The, the, the depths, the gravity of what sin does in their life and the ultimate eternal consequences of eternal hell. But today they recognize that Jesus made a way for them through His perfect life, through His meritorious works, His good works, and that He shed His blood as the perfect Son of God 
and died on the cross to forgive us of all our sins and to prove that Jesus wasn't just another sinner, another man who died. God raised his son from the dead and told his church to go to the world and preach the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. There is no other mediator between God and man. There's no other man sitting at the right hand of God other than Jesus. If you want to be close to God, you're going to have to know Jesus. And if you're ready to repent of your sin today and trust Jesus as your Savior and take on the identity of Christian and to follow him, that rhythm of waiting and witnessing, praying and making much of Jesus, to commit your life to him, would you bow your head and pray this prayer? I want to teach you to pray. There's nothing magical about this prayer. It's not some spell. We just simply want to call out to Jesus to forgive us of our sins and to commit our life to him. So would you just say, Dear Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner and deserve your judgment and hell. But I believe you love me. You came down for me. You lived a perfect life and you shed your blood and died on the cross for all my sins. I also believe God raised you from the dead to forgive me of my sin, turn my life around, and grant me eternal life. Please forgive me. Send your Holy Spirit into my life and take me to heaven with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And I want to encourage you, if you prayed that prayer, what Jesus has taught all of his followers is that the next step of obedience to him in response to this private confession is we make our commitment public to the world through believer's baptism. When you go under the water, you are saying you believe and identify with the death of Jesus for your sin. And when you come up out of the water, you're saying that you believe and identify with Jesus' resurrection and the turnaround life and eternal life that he's granted you. And so if you've never been baptized, here's your next step right now. You can go to mtcarmeldemarest.com, our website, mtcarmeldemarest.com forward slash baptism. And if you can't find it, just hover over the home tab and there it is. Click on baptism and fill out that form. It's sent to me. I would love to follow up with you about baptizing you as soon as these doors are open. The last thing that I want to say are two Holy Spirit indwelled believers. And there's no such thing as a Holy Spiritless Christian. But I do believe there are Christians who have grieved the Holy Spirit and have, or have stifled the work of the Holy Spirit when we need to be desperately dependent upon the Spirit to fill us and send us out to live godly lives and to enjoy that and witness for the glory of God. And what I want you to do, I'm going to put up a countdown. I would ask you whether you're by yourself or whoever you're watching with this morning, if you would just huddle up, have a prayer huddle, and, and do what they did here in Acts chapter 1, where they united in prayer. And hopefully, maybe you make this a daily thing, just like they did. 
right, with this little group that you're with, whether it's your family or other people you're watching with, and just pray. Say, Holy Spirit, we know you're here, but we have come to show and demonstrate that we can't do this work without you. Do your work so that we can work. Would you pray that? Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.